Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast produced by the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the heart of, according to John Hamm, the very cool city of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your co-host today, along with the amazing Troy Eller English. <laughs> you okay there, Troy? Yeah, yeah. I, I read, yes, thank you, John Hamm. <laughs> I know. That was so cool. He did you did you see the interview? Uh no, I read about the interview. Yeah, he he loves coney dogs. <laughs> and for you folks who are not in Detroit, a coney dog is not related to Coney Island, but it is our own unique kind of hot dog with a hot dog which has a nice skin snappy flavor, covered in chili, onions, and mustard. Is that correct? Now, now Dan. All right, you're not from Michigan. It nope. is not chili. What is that <laughs> when you mush say, then? When you say chili, people think chili. It is not chili. Um, what is it? I, I have seen the contents, the ingredient list of what is involved in uh, coney sauce. And um, it's a lot of animal parts that you are probably not accustomed to eating. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. So to clarify, folks, it kind of looks like Texas chili, which does not include beans, as we know. Texas chili does not have beans. But you can buy giant tubes of it, like at, at uh, restaurant supply stores or something. And it has, so you can read the ingredients list. You may not want to. You may not want to. Yes. But they are... And- yeah. Very addictive. And 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 uh, Detroiters for... who have left who live elsewhere uh, or Michiganders who actually enjoy the Coney Island, they do ship. You can get them shipped for the holidays. So order your Coney dogs now because John Hamm would appreciate it. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. been a long In, year. <laughs> it's been a very long year, guys and gals. It really has. But we have a great show to end our year. In today's episode, we talk with Tony Gilpin, a labor historian, activist, and writer. She is the co-author of On Strike for Respect, a clerical and technical worker strike at Yale University, and was the recipient of the 2018 Deborah Bernhardt Award for Labor Journalism. We chatted with her about her latest book that came out earlier this year. It's called The Long Deep Grudge, a story of big capital, radical labor, and class war in the American heartland. Gilpin also was awarded an honorable mention by the Philip Taft Labor History Book Award Committee. Now, this is the first time ever they've done honorable mention uh, because the book is that good. Um, The book, The Long Deep Grudge, is a marvelous look at the labor conflict between International Harvester, or what used to be the McCormick Harvesting Machine Company, which at its peak was the fourth largest corporation in the United States, and as well, a leader in anti-union activity. And the book also talks about one of the most radical unions in the 20th century, the Multicultural Farm Equipment Workers Union, which represented the workers of International Harvester. Now, the book starts in the 1880s with the walkout at McCormick Works, which led to the Haymarket riots. And the book continues through a very rich, entertaining, well-researched tale that takes us all the way into the 1970s. Now, folks, this book is a bumpy ride. Gilpin not only has biographical sketches of the McCormick family and her own family history with the FE, but we ride through the history of anarchists, communists, and capitalists in the United States, McCarthy red baiting, leaders of industry, and the civil rights champions through a very intelligent narrative. Also, there's plenty of pictures too, folks, so that's always nice. So if you haven't done your holiday shopping yet, order this book from Haymarket uh, Press. They will give you a discount or wherever you do buy books online, or if you're allowed into bookstores, see if they have it. Now, also, you can order it as well after the holidays, because as we all know, sometimes we don't get what we like. This is a book for you to sit down during the winter of Corona. So enjoy, folks. Tony, thank you so much for joining us on Tales for the Ruther Library. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. 
Well, thanks so much uh, for having me. It is terrific to be here. And uh, I really look forward to talking about uh, my book with you all. Yeah, I know. Your book is incredible. It is a lot of fun reading it over the summer. Um, it covers you know, so much. It covers labor history, of course, and labor lore with uh, the Haymarket of uh, sit-downs, uh, but also covers social history and industry history. Um, that being said, there's a lot of stories in there. So what is your book really about with all these different layers? Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll answer that in two different ways. And first, let me say, I'm really glad to hear you say that it was fun reading it, because I'm not sure that that's always the case with history books in general and labor history in particular. And one of the things I'm happy about is that people seem to actually enjoy reading it. And I think that is because, um, in part, because I've incorporated uh, so many stories um, into the book, both from the perspective of the company side and the, and the labor side. Um, so let me answer your question about what it's about, really, in, in two ways. Um, first, with a, with a quick summary, and that would be to say that this book, The Long Deep Grudge, is the story of one of America's founding industrial empires, International Harvester, the uh, agricultural implement behemoth whose origins go back to early 19th century Chicago and the McCormick family that controlled it. It's also a story of how a radical workers organization, the Farm Equipment Workers, or FE as it was called, arose in the 1930s to challenge this tremendously powerful company. Uh, the philosophy of our union, said one FE official, is that management has no right to exist. And that militant stance derived in part from the union's associations with the Communist Party, drew it into conflict, not just with International Harvester and the other companies the uh, union dealt with, but the government, the mainstream press, and the labor establishment, particularly Walter Ruther of the United Auto Workers. But it's also a story, um, my book is also a story of how the comparatively small FE centered in America's heartland with a majority white membership engendered fierce loyalty from its rank and file and drew strength from a deeply felt transformative sense of solidarity among the membership that allowed it for a while to best both International Harvester and the UAW, and in particular in Louisville, Kentucky, where I um, explore uh, the lo FE local there, it overcame generations of entrenched racial animosity. So that's the summary answer. The second and um, broader answer would be to say that my book, I think, provides a really great um, uh, example of how the fights we're engaged in today connect to struggles that were waged a long time back. Um, and I'd also say that my book makes the case that for workers, knowing labor history is in and of itself an essential act of resistance. The book's title is drawn from the great Chicago writer Nelson Algren, who wrote in 1951 of the dark grudge cast by the four standing at the gallows head for the hope of the eight hour day and the long deep grudge born from McCormick, the Reaper. Auburn's poetic image referred to police violence in 1886 outside McCormick Works, which was the first plant in the IH, uh, International Harvester Empire, which triggered a demonstration the next night at Chicago's Haymarket Square when someone as yet unknown threw a bomb at that gathering young Cyrus McCormick II proved instrumental in ensuring that a group of anarchist labor activists were arrested and hung. That proved a catastrophe, as I'm sure you know, and most um, anybody that knows anything about um, labor history uh, knows that, that the Haymarket uh, riot, as it came to be known, uh, was a catastrophe for the American labor movement. Uh, um, the eight-hour day movement collapsed, unions were decimated, and anarchist and other radical workers' movements were destroyed. So when the FE arose in the 1930s, its leaders would frequently invoke their union's connection to Haymarket and the debt they owed to those 19th century martyrs. So I would argue that although both the FE and International Harvester are now gone, that grudge, which is to say the ongoing resentment workers feel toward capitalist exploitation is as deeply felt and alive as ever. So that's kind of a long 
answer, um, two, two answers to your questions. So I hope it wasn't um, too long, but provides, um, I think, the summary that you might need. No, it, is, it establishes the context, exactly what we're looking for to get this interview going. Um, because also I'd like how you in, in, uh, describe the evolution of unions from craft to industrial in the early part of this book. Um, so why don't we start there with the craft unions and McCormick plant and, and what happened according to your, you know, according to the title of your first part, weeding out that bad element. Right, and that's um, a quote from Cyrus McCormick II. The, um, then in 1986, young uh, new president of the company. And, you know, I think today when um, especially young labor activists think about craft unions, all they they know about the history of craft unions is is fairly negative. They think, you know, they think of them as racist, sexist, opposed to broad-based industrial organizing, and a lot of that reputation is certainly um, deserved. Um, but but what I the reason that I wanted to you know one of the reasons I wanted to take this book all the way back to the 19th century and look at those craft unions who were so important in um, McCormick works is um, I think we need to think about how much power those um, skilled workers held and where that power derived from. Obviously it came from the very knowledge that they had, the fact that they knew better than their employers um, how to do the work and get production done. Uh, they also understood where that power came from. They understood how important that knowledge and their skills were and so did um, obviously the the the, uh, the bosses the employers as um, as the 19th century progressed and so part of that struggle at Haymarket is over that attempt by Cyrus McCormick to break the power of those skilled um, unions the iron molders in particular within McCormick Works um, he, Cyrus McCormick set out to do that. Uh, both by using sort of what we what we um, come to know came to know as as typical 19th century union busting tactics, hiring Pinkertons and uh, employing utilizing the, the Chicago Police Department. But he also did that through the use of technology, labor displacing um, uh, technology that um, essentially robbed skilled workers of uh, that knowledge that they had. Um, and with that you know, using the, through, through the combined force of, uh, of literal force and technology, uh, McCormick was able to uh, supplant the skilled laborers in his factory, replace them with semi-skilled workers. And with that control that he wrested from skilled workers, he was able to assert uh, management control over uh, international harvester factories for decades. So I think the, one of the reasons I want people to think about now about where um, about about those battles between skilled craftsmen and um, and employers back in the 19th century is I think we need to look at the source of that power, how much under, workers then understood their own power and how to utilize it and um, how they used it to, um, at least um, for a while, maintain the upper hand in workplaces. And so, you know, today I think workers um, and, and organizers really need to think about where workers' power derives from, how to, um, how to utilize it, and, um, uh, and I think there are lessons there in that, like, those 19th century struggles. Yeah, I think it it's kind of harpens into what I'm thinking about with teachers right now is like when they walk out, they are the professional craft union within the school district. And when they're out, there's no one else to replace them. There's their power within the teachers, which is we almost people are afraid of the teacher union power. Um, but we see it more and more, especially now right now with the University of Michigan is uh, the grad students. Right. Are Right, so right, we have right. we have this this working class is very low, do, no one respects really, and they're kind of invisible. But they're the ones making the universities work, really. You know, right. Out of the right, and of course it, that's you know, and I, and one of the reasons I think that that uh, it, it's helpful to to think about um, skilled unions um, in earlier eras is because of course these were not educated in the traditional sense um, mm -hmm. uh, people. So not only do we have um, graduate um, students who can exercise their power, we also have 
um, grocery store clerks and medical technicians and uh, a host of other kinds of workers, teamsters and truck drivers who, who in fact also have the skill and knowledge that it really takes to make workplaces go. We're, you know, we, we've been acquainted with that now um, with uh, COVID and the focus on what makes a worker essential. Um, and the hope is that more workers will come to understand their own power and that it doesn't take a college degree to have that power. It doesn't take, you know, it just, it, it takes knowledge of the workplace and even Though we don't have, you know, that many workers aren't skilled in this in the in the sense that we called them that in the 19th century. In fact, you know, workplaces can't function without the contributions of of uh, workers. And uh, the more people come to understand that, the more they can utilize that power to get what they deserve. And and I think we saw also the people recognizing that uh, a solidarity union movement within their workplace that wasn't existence before is now something that more workers are looking at. And right. this kind of segues into our next question. This is about in the 30s. Okay. Essentially, being in a union became legal in a way with the NLRB. And FDR was saying if he was in a factory, he'd join a union. So everybody's joining a union because they see the power in it, the unity of it, and getting what they need, better pay, security, safety in the workplace. Um, now the FE went against all odds and beat one of the most anti-union corporations in the world. Um, how, how, do you, how do they do that? Uh, right, um, you know, and we tend to think of those, those victories in the 1930s and of course the sit-down strike um, by the United Auto Workers, the UAW in, the, in 1936, maybe the hallmark of those CIO victories in the 1930s. We tend to think of them and they're often taught as these kind of spontaneous um, responses to the um, hardships imposed by the Great Depression. And to some extent, those national movements, those worker uprisings um, were, of course, um, took place um, because of the, what the cataclysm that the, the Great Depression represented. But they also, uh, generally speaking, also represented the, um, the uh, a, a legacy of organizing, worker organizing that went back much farther and had and where workers had been involved in organizing in the quieter periods, say of the 1920s. Um, so that's certainly true. That's one of the things I, I um, focus on in my book is not, you know, not the exciting period of the 1930s. I mean, I certainly talk about that and how mm-hmm. how the, the the FE emerged in in that along with those other um, better known uh, industrial unions at the CIO, but how um, those, those many of those organizers had, were um, involved back in the 1920s. So, um, and I'm just gonna open up my book here and read a little bit. Um, so, but there were, there's, there's, there was that legacy of organizing, that organizing that had been going on well before the depression started, um, but they also did other things that I think are essential to organizing campaigns. Uh, the FE, again, you know, the CIO in the, in the mid-1930s, we're not talking about a well-funded, um, well-oiled machine. We're talking about um, organizations that for the most part, and, in, and for the FE, this was, this was particularly true their organizing efforts relied on rank and file workers, not paid organizers. They didn't have any money for staff. So um, as they expanded from one plant to another, the organizing drive for International Harvester began at one plant in Chicago, mm-hmm. um, and which included, which, and then spread to McCormick Works, the historic plant. Uh, um, so, but that was done by workers themselves. That organizing was done by workers themselves. They, um, Effie aggressively appealed to the ethnic workers uh, uh, in that uh, were, were predominant in those plants, Polish workers and other workers from Eastern Europe, but also to the African-American population. Um, there were, it was about um, 10 to 15% um, of employees at McCormick and, and the other plants in Chicago were African-American. 
um, but the FE made an aggressive push to um, recruit them into the union, um, despite the fact the union itself was a majority white organization. They also, I think these leaders, and this is where I'm gonna um, read a bit here, um, the, the FE leaders demonstrated that they were unintimidated by management and um, by, by this, uh, by this uh, union busting family that had um, roots that went back to the to Haymarket and were ready to go toe to toe with them. Um, so uh, I, I just wanna say that they, um, I'm reading this from the book now, that the FE leadership, this early FE leadership understood that Harvester employees had for decades been schooled in a system of industrial relations designed to keep them docile and afraid. These workers needed to be convinced that the union would, made a, would make a qualitative difference in their lives, but that would not be enough. They then also had to believe that they would challenge their powerful employer and win. Getting IH workers to embrace both these concepts necessitated a long, concerted push. And some of that long concerted push involved tutoring that was provided to these early FE leaders by a man named Joe Weber, who was involved with the Steelworkers Organizing Committee, but was also a longtime member of the Communist Party and a seasoned veteran organizer. So it was sort of an inside the plant and outside the plant push um, that led to this, um, this final breakthrough. And it wasn't until 1941, though, which was much after, which was, which was after unions like the, like, or companies like Ford and U.S. Steel and General Motors and Republic Steel had been organized. It wasn't until 1941 that the FE managed to secure a multi-plant contract at International Harvester. So, um, and I'll also note a connection, another connection to the UAW, and that's that just like those sit-down strikes in 1936, the FE also employed a rather dramatic organizing tactic, um, and that is in 1941, they organized a kind of lightning strike within McCormick Works, which um, hadn't been expected. All of a sudden, union supporters marched through the plant and shut the plant down and emptied out the plant. And that particular action was uh, led in part by Bob Travis, who had been one of the leaders of the sit-down strikes in, uh, in, in, at General Motors, who uh, briefly was on the, the staff or on the, uh, in the leadership of the farm equipment workers. So I would, I, my, my, um, the short answer is that I think that these breakthroughs in the 30s, including the FE, um, the FEs were the result of a long, of a long push, um, and then some dramatic actions that demonstrated to workers that um, this, these organizations were different than anything they'd seen before and were more than willing and able to, um, to take on uh, the companies that they, uh, that they dealt with. Well, that's another reason I think like every organizer should read your book because <laughs> it, people forget that it is a long haul to organize a union. Even back back then, even even just ten years ago, it was a long haul. I remember um, when I was organizing some some universities, uh, I'd show up, do my thing, then leave, and then four years later, they finally organize. It's a long, long, bitter battle. And it's usually set up because, like uh, with McCormick or International Harvester, as, as now they were called, they were they were they were so anti-union that they were using every kind of trick in the book and every kind of so-called uncalled company unions that they would use, et cetera, et cetera. They're constantly fighting against the FE and any kind of unionization. Um, is there any kind of like story that stands out today? Uh, with you right now that we that is so typical of what they did to try to bust the union? Right, and I'll I'll, I'll concur with you um, uh, uh, also right right off the the bat to say that when I talk to union groups about about my book or or just generally about labor history, I will say that that's one of the reasons that it's so important for workers to to read history or to watch videos about history or just become immersed in in some of the history because you really do recognize that this is this is a long the struggle and you know and the subtitle of my book is, is is about class warfare and I would say that you know 
it's an unending struggle. Um, you know, will will workers will win and then management will push back and then you know you'll lose a bit and then you'll you'll win again and so so it's always it's an ongoing process and within that and no individual worker or organizer can really know what impact they're having. So sometimes when it appears that uh, you know that things just aren't moving and you're not having any kind of luck or success, uh, you know, a few years later, or maybe even uh, 10 or 20 years later, you know, your work is going to have an impact. So I'm always emphasizing that. And I think this is one of those um, great examples. The story of the farm equipment workers is one of the great examples of that. And so I'll say two things about an international harvester and the McCormick family that controlled it and, and why it is that I focus so much attention on them. And I do think that they are, they are really a, um, just absolutely essential for um, understanding the evolution of American management and American industrial relations. And that's, again, why I focus on both sides of this story, both workers and, and management. Um, because by the time we get to the 30s, uh, harvester management and McCormick family had really evolved from that 19th century, uh, uh, you know, open warfare kind of management strategy where you just kind of walk in, bust unions, literally um, use force against workers, uh, hire detectives, Pinkertons, um, they had moved away from that and moved into a much more sophisticated anti-union avoidance strategy, which involved in the 1920s, the adoption of what was called welfare capitalism. So all kinds of um, inducements to workers, uh, which ranged, you know, from things like pensions to cafeterias and plants and, and um, health and safety programs. And, you know, one of the things I discuss in my book is how those programs all sounded great and sounded like wonderful um, um, uh, gifts to the workforce. But in fact, there were all kinds of limitations and qualifications and ways in which workers had to show their loyalty in order to, to, to get those sorts of things. Um, but at any rate, Harvester had become uh, a very sophisticated um, um, utilizer and in fact innovated many of the um, employer programs that we now sort of take for granted in industrial relations. And one of the things also that um, International Harvester was had always used back into the 19th century and, and all through their existence was this very sophisticated payment system, which was a piecework type of payment system. So um, incentive pay for workers, which in many ways, and so there's a lot that I get into in that, um, about that in the book, to demonstrate the ways in which Harvester very cleverly was getting a lot more money out of um, the workers than than workers recognized. And so one of the ways that um, the FE challenges International Harvester, one of the reasons that the relationship is so contentious between um, that union and that company was this particular pay system. And so I think it's important to actually look at you know, how, how workers are paid, how management actually um, extracts that surplus value, um, as we can call it, from um, workers. But one of the things I always like to focus on when I'm talking about, um, so you're, you're asking for an example, is rather than, again, I pull this back all the way to the 19th century and up through the 20s, and so one of the unsung heroes in my book is a fellow named John Becker. And John Becker, um, was a worker at at McCormick Works in the 1920s. And this was the period when International Harvester has introduced company unions into its plants. And they were, again, one of the innovators of that kind of scheme, a replacement, as it were, for genuine unions, something that looked very attractive to workers. We're going to give you a forum. We're going to give you a way to um, bring up problems um, and talk directly to management. But of course, that was a, it was a sham. It wasn't really designed to redistribute power like an actual union would. But this fellow named John Becker um, and, and, and International Harvester had all kinds of ways to sort of control who would be um, the worker representatives on these councils. So there were age restrictions and citizenship requirements and length of service requirements. So essentially they got the workers onto the works councils to be these work um, worker representatives that they wanted. But one fellow named John Becker gets um, elected in uh, to the McCormick Works Council early in the 1920s. 
and, and becomes an immediate thorn in the side of harvester management because he doesn't behave like the docile um, worker that he's supposed to. He starts demanding wage increases, starts raising safety issues, um, and uh, it's, it's not surprising to, to learn that he doesn't last long, and I tell his story in the book, he doesn't last long as a worker representative. He disappears, presumably he's fired, not surprisingly, because at this point, without a real union, of course, Harvester had the power to do that, um, to simply fire anyone at will whenever they wanted to. So John Becker disappears, but right after he goes away, he, he disappears, other workers who are on the works councils, you know, he has, he has raised these issues, he's asked for wage increases, he's asked for safety um, issues to be addressed, and nothing happens. So workers, other workers, see how, um, what a sham these company unions are, and begin to actually organize through them. So it's because of John Becker, it's because of those workers who raise those issues and then are punished by um, the company that we see this ripple effect that then begins to take hold in the, in the um, harvester plants. And it's through those company unions that workers actually organize and bring real unionism into international harvester. So I love the John Becker story. Um, and you know he's not obviously not famous. Nobody's ever heard of him before. He doesn't go on to become a, a well-known union leader. I don't know whatever happened to him. But um, because he was willing to stand up and fight at a time when that was really difficult and um, uh, probably lost his job as a result, other workers were um, emboldened to to pick up where he left off. Well, that's the usual uh, thing with history, isn't it? Is those, uh, especially bottom up history, we find right. those little people, those people that lit the spark or laid something down that where others picked up and he, yeah, I actually, that story was, was pretty incredible. You know, thinking about the early twenties, here's this guy. It's like, well, aren't we supposed to be talking about this stuff? It sounded like he was trying to be, he was innocent enough trying to say, he's like, well, we're supposed to talk about this. Right. right. But I know he had an agenda all along. You can just right. feel it in him. Yeah. And it was, it was one of those kind of stories. So it was the company union that actually helped get the union established in one kind of a way, you know, help them right. make them work. As, as they always say is uh, management is always the best organizer. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes, you know, pressing them to fulfill what they say they're going to do um, is the best way to show workers um, how empty those actual, um, those promises actually are. So, and that's certainly what, what he did, but he paid a price for it, no doubt. And, um, you know, so, but one of the reasons we write history, I think, is so that we can recognize those people who have been lost um, and who don't get into the you know, into the big history books so we can recognize what they did and um, and tell their stories. Right, exactly. And a good story as well. Um, all right, big shift now. Um, it's post-World War II. And I like how you address uh, Taft-Hartley and the differences between FE and the United Auto Workers, because here's a time where you know, the strikes are, you know, many strikes are happening in 1946. Then the shift with the uh, government, uh, it gets a little more conservative, the past of the Taft-Hartley Act, which restricts unions completely um, that we're still facing today. But unions had to make a decision. Do we stay radical or do we go and work with this, in, as we call corporate unionism, the beginning of? And I like how you make the difference between what FE and the UAW were. So can you explain to our, our listeners what differences they took on Taft-Hartley? Right. Um, and I'll, I'll do that by, by, first of all, backing up to, to talk about those, those ideological differences between the FE and the UAW and why that mattered so much. Because, in fact, you know, in many ways, my book um, tells a story of two major conflicts. The first one that I've been talking about so far is the conflict between the FE and International Harvester Management, but the second one is is between the FE and the UAW, mm -hmm. the, and and uh, the UAW is led by Walter Ruther, who becomes president of the UAW after World War II, and who becomes um, really the most important anti-communist um, labor leader in the in the Cold War period, and so there's this ideological conflict between. Um, the left wing of the labor movement and the anti-communist um, uh, section of the labor movement. And I think that this 
this particular um, battle, when it really is a battle, <laughs> as I detail, there are there are literal um, um, fights between um, and quite serious ones between FE members and, and UAW members that um, uh, are detailed. Uh, so this battle represents this, um, and and the FE UAW one is really the best example um, where you can see what this ideological split meant. And what, what, what does that mean? I mean, the, the UAW has embraced, Walter Ruther has embraced what is called the politics of productivity. This, mm -hmm. this belief that an expanding economy, that in this post-war era, an expanding economy, it seemed like the economy was the American economy, which is going gangbusters after World War II, is just going to expand infinitely. And with that expansion, it's possible for both workers and management and, and business owners, everyone to sort of equally share in, the, um, in, this, in this growth. And so this is most manifested sort of famously in the 1950 UAW General Motors uh, contract, which becomes called the Treaty of Detroit, which embraces thing, which is a long contract. It's one of the, the first really long contracts. It's a five-year contract. It, um, it, it uh, obliges the union to, to, uh, to endorse and enforce uh, increasing productivity in the plants. So the notion of increased productivity and of, of uh, increasing production, that the union becomes a partner in that goal with um, General Motors management. Uh, it also includes things, so it includes a productivity pay increase. So workers are rewarded as, as production increases. It includes a cost of living increase. All things that sound um, great, but the FE on the other side um, opposes that philosophy of um, uh, its politics of productivity to embrace instead a politics of class conflict. And so, for example, here's a quote from the FE discussing that Treaty of Detroit. Uh, they say, the Treaty of Detroit was predicated on the historic lie of labor statesmen, that labor can trust big business between contracts, that all that is necessary is to act tough at contract times, come up with a new super plan, and then work out a deal that can help both sides. Such an ideology belies the fact that there is only one side for business, its side, and that it operates on the principle of getting as much as it can. It can be deterred in its exploitation only by applying economic and political power 365 days a year. So for the FE that meant opposing productivity pay increases and cost of living increases, even though they sounded like good things to workers, because this obliged the union to, to police workers and make sure they were producing um, as much as possible at all times. The FE believed in trying to, in fact, um, ease the burden on workers, not have them um, work as hard. Uh, and so there, the FE embraced short contracts, just one-year contracts was what they um, was what they really wanted. They opposed those kind of clauses. But the other important difference between the UAW and FE um, contracts, um, and the, the UAW began to organize also some of the plants that international under International Harvester, because um, IH also produced trucks. So the difference in those contracts is pretty important to see. One of the things the FE also embraced that is not true for the UAW going forward after World War II is a very large aggressive steward body. So lots of stewards in FE plants as opposed to UAW ones. And what does this mean? This also means the FE, which opposes no strike pledges, which is an important part of that Treaty of Detroit, um, you see astronomical numbers of walkouts at FE plants. Between 1945 and 1954, there are over 1,000 work stoppages at international harvester plants represented by the FE, which is an extraordinary figure, and there's nothing comparable um, to it in, in UAW plants, for example. That's because the FE maintains this belief 
that it's important to address worker complaints, worker issues immediately on the shop floor. And they do that you know, often enough by simply stopping work. Um, so, there, so that's the ideological difference. Which way is labor gonna go? Um, are we going to move towards labor management cooperation? Are we going to embrace this um, politics of class conflict? Now Taft-Hartley, which gets um, introduced in 1947, is a terrible bill for the entire labor movement. Everybody recognizes it when it's passed. Um, and initially, all labor opposes it. Uh, Walter Ruther, John L. Lewis, the left-wing unions, everybody is um, against this bill. It contains all of these provisions, um, a ban on secondary boycotts, yeah. uh, all kinds of anti-strike um, provisions, uh, uh, things like the introduces the ability for states to adopt right-to-work legislation. It's a terrible bill that's going to cripple the labor movement. Everybody is opposed to it. Um, and the way that they decide that one of the reasons they, one of the ways in which they can manifest their opposition is because the bill also contains in this um, uh, Cold War era an anti-communist affidavit. So every union leader, every elected official has to sign a pledge saying that they are not associated with the Communist Party. And initially, many labor leaders, including ones who are clearly not communists, like John L. Lewis and Philip Murray of the CIO, say they're not going to sign that because to sign this affidavit um, seems to endorse the other provisions of Taft-Hartley. But Walter Ruther of the UAW, who is avowedly anti-communist by this point, sees an opportunity there. Because every union, the unions that don't sign these affidavits can't make use of the National Labor Relations Board machinery. So Ruther signs his affidavit and insists that everybody else in the UAW sign one as well. And this means that uh, if the UAW, for example, challenges another union for representation at a plant, and it begins to do this with the FE in a big way, uh, the FE can't be on the ballot because the NLRB won't recognize it. So this, this uh, begins the onslaught of a big raid, what, we, what we're called raids, um, yep. from the UAW on FE plants. And the FE, under um, increasing pressure, and I tell the story of the loss of the big Caterpillar plant in Peoria mm -hmm. because, of, because the FE wasn't on the ballot, um, ultimately the leaders decide to, to sign these anti-communist affidavits. But in this struggle over Taft-Hartley, you really do see this ideological division um, come to the fore. And were it not for this, um, this split, um, we might have seen more united opposition to Taft-Hartley. And there were, you know, the labor movement is continuing to suffer uh, what was imposed on it by Taft-Hartley. I mean, it's my belief that the, the Wagner Act, if it hadn't been modified as it was by Taft-Hartley, would still provide a really solid basis for union organizing, which um, which we don't have now. You're absolutely right. I mean, the Wagner Act would uh, allow not only a continuation of uh, the cons more conservative unions, but also the radical unions that are out there. Right. It, would give, it would give a better choice and freedom to be able to organize. Now, in those same years, International Harvester uh, eventually moves plant into uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, they're they're expanding out into the South, like another like a lot of other companies. But I love what you say in your book. This is a great quote. It's it says. Interracial solidarity became not an abstract construct, but a daily practice, unquote. Um, can you elaborate this, especially with these, um, the two gyms, as I like <laughs> to call them. When I was reading, it's like, oh, the gyms again. Um, <laughs> can you just elaborate on what, uh, what you stated here? Right. Um, yes. And as you indicate, International Harvester, like um, just about every other major um, industrial corporation in the United States following um, World War II, begins to look um, south to escape, in large part to escape the uh, unionism that had been imposed on them in, uh, you know, what's now the Rust Belt, the northern cities. So um, International Harvester is one of many corporations that starts to open plants in the American South. This is, of course, the precursor to moving out of America altogether. Um, so their first plant that they um, open after World War II um, south of the Mason-Dixon line is in Louisville, Kentucky. And the FE successfully 
organizes that plant um, in 1947. And I tell the story of that organizing drive, which is extraordinary. Um, and mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. Louisville plant and all um, that, all the significance that it had, it becomes um, a main focus of the, 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 the say the, the second third of my book um, because they do manage to, um, to build an um, extraordinary interracial solidarity at this local in the South. Um, and I start out the discussion by talking about um, two men who work at the plant, one Jim Wright, an African-American, another Jim Mauser, um, a, a white worker at the plant, both of them young, both of them veterans of World War II, uh, and they start to work um, uh, fairly, um, Jim Wright, the African-American worker, starts almost immediately, um, even before International Harvesters really started production in Louisville. Uh, Jim Mauser starts working there a little bit later. But I do start out the discussion by talking about um, them. I'm going to just read the, the first yeah. um, paragraph of the uh, chapter that opens the discussion of Louisville. Two men who work at the same place and become close friends. Nothing especially remarkable about that unless one of them was white and the other was black, and they lived, and they both lived in Louisville in the 1940s. Then and there, such an occurrence was indeed out of the ordinary. The story of these two men and the bond they developed is the story of the FE in Louisville. Mm -hmm. So I then, I do talk a lot um, about both gyms and their um, extraordinary, well, their friendship, which was actually became not too extraordinary within that local, and that's part of what's, um, really important. Uh, Jim Wright, when he starts working at uh, the Louisville plant, you know, talks about the white workers who um, came to work there. And I think it's, this is a really, this story of what the FE accomplished in Louisville is really important to um, consider in light of our, you know, the general conception um, these days about white Southerners as deplorable unredeemable in their racism. Uh, when Jim Wright started to work at the plant and workers were coming in and being hired and, and the, the um, plant becomes about 15% African-American, the rest um, white workers. Um, Jim Wright describes them this way. We had all hillbillies, that's all we had in Jim Wright's estimation. Farmers, guys who wore overalls, chewed tobacco, mm -hmm. spitting on the floor, and these kind of guys were real racist. I mean, real racist. So the FE comes in to organize this plant. It's actually being challenged by other unions. Um, and they might have chosen um, under these circumstances faced with this kind of workforce, this majority white workforce that has that kind of deeply embedded uh, generational legacy of racism. They might have chosen to downplay uh, racial unity. Instead, they pursue it aggressively. They have, they start organizing with both a black organizer and a white organizer at the plant. They make it very clear to all the workers as they're recruiting them that interracial solidarity is the essence of this union. And here's one of the black organizers, for example, discussing um, the organizing campaign. He said, we had meetings during the campaign and at these meetings, the workers were encouraged to discuss freely the questions they had on their minds concerning the farm equipment workers. It wasn't just upfront stuff of the organizers standing up front and making big speeches, but the workers were encouraged to participate in such controversial questions as Negroes working in the plant. It was a rare thing in this community for Negroes to hold any position above the status of janitor or laborer. These questions were freely discussed and openly on the floor. Sometimes there was objection openly on the part of white workers to the union's policy of no discrimination. On many occasions, the white workers who understood this question a little better challenged them on the floor. And after some discussion, the real basic explanation was given to these people. So uh, they made interracial solidarity uh, central to their organizing campaign right from the beginning. Uh, they manage, and I tell the story of how um, they nonetheless um, win that 
organizing drive. And uh, in part, you know, it's because, or in large part, it's because they explain to Southern workers how um, racism uh, has been used by companies to depress wages and benefits for both white and um, black workers. Here's a FE pamphlet, for example. The Southern bosses for generations had played Negro against white and white against Negro. There was a direct connection between this and the fact that Southern workers were the lowest paid in the country. So they made that part of their organizing drive, but then they also made it part of the union as um, once the union was recognized. It wasn't just um, rhetoric that was used at the beginning, it became part of the identity of the local. Um, and so that continues throughout the union's history and uh, continues to be pushed. And one of the people who gets involved with the union and who comes to see that is the civil rights um, activist, renowned civil rights activist, Ann Braden, who, mm -hmm. who works with the union later on and helps them with their educational programs. And so, for example, she talks about a later meeting, and this is after the union has been recognized. I never went to a local 236, that's the FE local in Louisville, meeting where somebody didn't get up and make a speech about the reason we're so strong and we can win. And they always said they had the highest wages in the South, and I never saw that refuted anywhere. The reason that we have all that is because we stick together, black and white. Let them attack a black worker, and we're there to do something. We're going to walk out of the plant. This is the reason we've got this strong union. And they preach that constantly. So that becomes part of the DNA of the local. But the other thing that I emphasize is that one of the other things that bonds these workers and, and, and creates these, these friendships, these deep bonds, Jim Wright and Jim Mauser become very close friends, but so do some of the other workers um, and, and also workers' um, spouses. And I um, tell those stories. Um, is because of that militancy on the shop floor. There is this constant battle and these constant walkouts. The Louisville plant becomes um, renowned for being one of the leaders uh, in terms of how many walkouts they have. And those fights bond black and white workers together. They need each other. They come to see that on a daily basis, how they need each other to, um, to maintain those good wages, um, to maintain those good benefits. And so they feed on each other, this, this rhetoric of unity, but also these actions that actually demonstrate, as, um, as I say, a daily practice of interracial solidarity. So, you know, I think you need both um, to, to, to build uh, a strong union. You need not only to, to talk about it and to, and to educate, but you need to demonstrate it in practice. And I think uh, the FE in Louisville is a remarkable example of that, and I also think again that it 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 really underscores that uh, many of those who we think to be um, unredeemable um, racists it can be appealed to, can have this explained to them, and can mm -hmm. overcome that. And one of uh, my favorite stories in the book talks about one of the white workers and his feelings about having overcome that racism that he grew up with, and that many of his family members um, continued to believe and that, you know, he becomes one of the strongest FE um, stalwarts and also then, um, as I detail in the book, becomes one of those who takes that campaign against racism and segregation and then segregated um, Louisville into the community. So it has a spillover effect um, into the community. And so it's a really a, a, an incredible story of, and I'm, I was really happy to be able to tell it about um, what these workers accomplished in Louisville and how and what that means for what we might be able to to do today. Absolutely. That's that's throughout throughout the these the Effie's history from um let's say doing a thousand wildcat strikes, uh battling management, um being this uh, radical union and, and over their head here is HUAC issues and here is the rating from the UAW and others. Um eventually they have to fold. Eventually they have to be swallowed up by the UAW and Ruther actually allows these radicals in the FEA to continue on. So what was the relationship um and how did FE fare under the thumb of Ruther? Right. Well, I, I start the book by talking about, you know, my own um, personal uh, 
story and the connection to this book, which I don't think we've mentioned yet. And that is that my father was um, one of the leaders of the farm equipment workers. I was gonna get but to when that, I was growing, is, what's that? I was going to get to that, but go ahead. Oh. You can keep going. Have it's a personal story for you too. I yeah, yes, yeah. actually, pull it all together there. <laughs> right, and I and I, um, but I grew up knowing him as an official um, of Region Four in Illinois and Chicago of the United Auto Workers of the UAW. So I didn't really know very much about that past um, um, uh, connection to the farm equipment workers. I knew vaguely that he'd been involved in this other union, but my upbringing was. Growing up in the 60s and 70s, um, was uh, with the UAW as part of the UAW family, and um, but I always knew one thing. I always knew, which is what led me um, in part to do this research later in my life, was that my father always believed that um, the agricultural implement contracts, and particularly those at International Harvester were the best contracts in the UAW, better than the uh, General Motors contracts or the Ford contracts or the auto contracts in general. And in fact, you know, if you look into this, you actually find that there are industrial relations experts who um, agreed with that, who thought that, that it was really those um, ag imp, as they were called, contracts that led the way for the UAW um, to um, introduce all kinds of good things for workers. So even once the UAW absorbs the FE, and that is part of the story of the book, the personal story about um, what that meant for um, people like my father to go into the UAW after they'd been so opposed to that union for so long, and what that meant for Walter Ruther. And so that's one of the, those are some of the many um, personal stories that I, I touch on there. But uh, even after this union has been absorbed by a union that in many ways ideologically is um, its opposite, that militancy, and this is again, part of that long story about part of why it is that um, what, what organizing, what organizers do matters, um, that militancy remains within the rank and file. And so you have, um, you have continuing, despite the fact that the UAW is not, you know, does not embrace wildcat strikes in the way the right. FE had, you still have um, all kinds of disturbances at international harvester plants after they're um, part of the uh, UAW. And you have this extraordinary strike that takes place in 1979 that is one of the longest in UAW history uh, at International Harvester, then UAW members. Um, so, and they, they go on strike, not over wages, but to oppose some of the changes in work rules that the company is looking to impose. So again, these are not necessarily wages, they're quality of life issues, they're about how fast you have to work and how much you have to work. And that legacy of uh, believing that that's something workers should have control over, or at least um, more control than they're usually allowed, is something that I think um, international harvester workers um, have a long memory of. So, um, so that's part of what um, um, the story that I tell is that this militancy that had been bred into uh, generations of harvester workers by this point um, carries over into the UAW and and tends to change the UAW on some ways in some ways in other ways it doesn't I mean I do tell the story of the decline and then um, uh, um, disappearance of international harvester the shutdown of many of these plants and that the UAW by this point in the 60s 70s and 80s as it's faced with these plant closings, because it has lost this 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 militant um, because, uh, character, because it has moved into this um, uh, philosophy of labor management cooperation, doesn't have a response to those plant closings. Doesn't have any way to oppose them. Doesn't have anything to tell workers about um, what we can do to stop this. Um, and uh, I think the the FE did. I mean, in part, FE mem former FE members within the UAW are pushing, for example, for a six-hour day. And Ruther in the UAW is opposed to that back in the um, back in the late '50s, early '60s. Um, so we have solutions. We have possible ways to address those things that we can look to the past to kind of um, uh, come up with. And uh, but I think the current labor movement in part because it has so embraced the management perspective, they just can't, they can't see it. And that's one of the things we've lost and need to reclaim by getting back into some of this radical history. Well, I think that's why everybody should read your book. 
everybody wow. in the labor movement should read your book to realize that there is there has been laid out plans to have the answers um, yeah. for ills today. That's, yeah, I mean, um, it's not a blueprint. It never is a blueprint. But um, right. history not only inspires by by these lessons that, you know, of how um, this ripple effect and the impact, but it but it also um, shows us that there were other ways of thinking, other models, other approaches that um, that have salience today. I think that's that's really true. And that's another reason it's the way we expanded the Ruther Library is that we're working closer and closer with our donating unions helping them understand that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. That mm-hmm. they, did, yes. they did something maybe 40 years ago. And every once in a while, we, we do help in that way. Mm-hmm. So speaking of archives, we always like to end our, our episodes with our researchers who have used our collections and ask them mm-hmm. what collections, I know it's been a while since you've yes. been at the Ruther, um, but I wonder if you remember what collections you use at the Ruther and what other archives you use to dig up this industrial union, uh, um, <laughs> the industrial businesses uh, history, as well as union history that um, this unfolded. Right. And this, um, as you know, and your listeners know yet, this, this, my book began as a dissertation that I did many decades ago. Um, it's now very different. Um, it's not, doesn't, I, hope, I, I believe doesn't read like a dissertation. It kind of actually reads kind of a bit like a detective story. It opens with a murder that takes place in a dramatic strike that the International Harvester and the FE engage in in 1952. It opens with that and then ends with that. Um, and and, and sort of what, what that unsolved murder, uh, or at least the, I don't tell you the resolution of it at the beginning, but get to uh, into the details um, towards the end of the book. So it doesn't read like a dissertation now. Right. Um, right. But, it's really, um, really readable. It is really readable. <laughs> well, I hope that's true. I've, I've heard that is the case, but um, the more people that tell me that, I'm, I'm pleased about that. That was my desire to, to write a book that could be read by academics and um, activists and people who didn't know or or think they thought they cared about labor history at all. I was hoping that I could reach all those folks. Um, so, but uh, so most of my research of the archival nature, at any rate, was done a long time ago, including the work that I did at the um, the Ruther Library. And uh, and of course, I loved working there. And much of what I was culling from the Ruther archives, particular locals or UAW uh, material, had to do, of course, obviously with the UAW perspective and the UAW side of things. So much of the information about how the UAW felt about the farm equipment workers, its 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 claim of jurisdiction over the farm equipment industry, um, and some of the uh, details about those raids, the UAW's attempts to take over FE plants. I also initially had been uh, desirous of uh, telling the story of one of the international harvester UAW organized locals, um, the one that had been organized um, from the beginning in 1941 by the UAW, which was a truck plant in, um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so I looked at the records for that plant and was going to um, include that in my dissertation, but just because I had so much to write about, I ended up not doing that. Um, the other archives that I, um, that I used and enjoyed working at um, were the uh, Chicago, what was then the Chicago Historical Society, now called the Chicago History Museum, um, then under, which had one of the greatest archivists of all time, mm-hmm. uh, the late Archie Motley, who was just a delight and wonder to, to work with. Um, and uh, I also did a huge amount of work and called a huge amount of information from then the International Harvester um, archives. Uh, Harvester was then merging with or had had been absorbed by Navistar, the truck producer. It now, to the extent that those plants exist anymore, any international harvester plants exist anymore, they're not those truck plants. Um, so it ceased to exist as international harvester became Navistar, but um, still had a corporate headquarters down on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, where, um, uh, you know, maintaining that original presence close to the very first um, pre-Chicago fire factory um, of uh, the McCormick family. But like so many other corporate um, entities, it no longer exists in Chicago. It is now, and Navistar is now decamped to some far-flung um, sub-office tower in the suburb. I don't know that they still even have an open archive. So um, so I'm, I'm lucky to have gotten a lot of the material. And there was just a huge amount of, of labor relations material that I was able to to see, and I will say that the company then, um, and they had a great corporate archivist who was very interested in history, loved history, was was really open about letting me 
use those files. And then the other thing that I used a lot of, uh, as you know, are FBI files and mm -hmm. other um, files, including the military intelligence files for my father, for example. So I tell that story of World War II, looking at a lot of uh, the Union of World War II, looking at those, how those Union leaders, including my father, were tracked um, during the war. So those are hard to come by too these days. I think the FOIA requests to get FBI files is, have really become um, really, really difficult. So I'm fortunate to have done all the, the, the bulk of my research um, when, it was, when, it, when I could do it. I also have a lot of um, interviews with workers um, and who, most of whom, in fact, I would be pretty positive, I could say all of whom have now passed away. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the work also benefits, the book also benefited from my having done these interviews. I wish I could talk to those people again now because so many of them, I'd be asking them different questions. I'd be asking them better questions than I did when I was, you know, in my early 20s. Um, I understand the situation better and have different um, issues I'd like to raise with them that I can't. Um, and my father had, had, had died before I even started this work. So I never interviewed him about this. Um, and of course, um, would love to know what he thinks of the book, but I probably wouldn't have been able to, to write it quite the same way, if at all, if he'd actually um, been around. So um, that's the archival story. And um, I do hope that researchers everywhere will be able to get back into archives soon because it's what makes, um, it's the heart of any great story is getting at those materials that um, you all take such good care of. Well, thank you, Tony, for joining us. I do appreciate the, you explain, uh, talking about your book. Um, again, a wonderful book, a great book, and I really appreciate the work you put into it. Well, it was really great to be here, and thanks so much. And again, as I said, thanks for taking good care of all those uh, great documents, too. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. This meeting is being recorded. You think they'll ever change that voice? I don't know. I hope they do. I know. I mean, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm happy that this person got work. <laughs> but it'd be nice. That's to... not a person. That is a computer-generated voice. There's no know. person behind that. There is a person. One time, a long time ago, she sat down on the microphone like 10 years ago and said that. There, There is no human behind that voice. <laughs> You hurt me, you know that, Troy. Uh-huh. <laughs> Folks, it is a bumpy ride. Gilpin not only has biographies, biographicals. Oh, I missed that one. Let me start that one. <laughs> you knew it was gonna happen. I was doing so well. You I I was I was uh shocked and uh proud. <laughs> <laughs> so proud. But, so but proud. not anymore. <laughs> No longer. I always, I always look for a way to disappoint, don't I? <laughs> All right.